The companies are spending millions of dollars to secure their infrastructure against their own government. What 702 would do, or putting it under 702 would do, was say, the government has a way of compelling the companies to cooperate, but from the company's perspective, by making it the exclusive means, is what they would then know is the government is not going around their backs to take the information out of their data centers. They would then be aware of the full scope of government requests for their data, and they would no longer have to worry about a story that says they left the back door open and everything's being taken. So there is a trade-off. The confidence of knowing that the government's dealing with you on a straightforward basis might actually improve cooperation with the companies. I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 13th, 2014. That's the voice of Mika Oyang, Director of National Security Programs at Third Way, a centrist democratic think tank. Mika is a longtime congressional national security staffer with a significant period of time on the House Intelligence Committee. She worked on the writing of the FISA Amendments Act. Mika recently wrote on Lawfare a genuinely disruptive little idea for FAA exclusivity for overseas NSA collection against U.S. tech firms. I asked her in to talk about its reception among civil libertarians and security hawks, how it could break up a stale left-right debate over NSA reform. It's the Lawfare Podcast, Mika Oyang on FAA exclusivity. So let's start with the big picture. Uh, what is this idea and how does it fit into the current FISA reform discussions? So the short title of this idea is FAA exclusivity. And what we're trying to do here, um, what, we've, what I've thought about here, and this is just in the idea stage, um, is how do we address some limitations on overseas collection against non-U.S. persons. What we've seen is that in the revelations with Edward Snowden that there's been a huge backlash against intelligence collection overseas against non-U.S. persons. The perception that we are hoovering up vast amounts of data and that there's no real limits to what that is. Um, and in large part, there have been media allegations, the veracity of those I won't comment on, that the U.S. telecommunications and internet companies have been the means by which the intelligence community has gathered that information. American tech companies have become global entities. Google and Facebook used around the world by, company, uh, by uh, foreigners um, to share data, to email each other, to exchange messages like people in the U.S. do. Um, the idea behind FAA exclusivity is that we had set up a, a system under the FISA Amendments Act to allow for collection of large amounts of data. Today's world, you need large amounts of data to do the kind of ana intelligence analysis to identify terrorist connections. Um, so it's large amounts of data against which there's a lower level of individual suspicion. The original FISA Amendments Act allows a FISA court order to gather that information, and it requires you to gather that information in three particular buckets, foreign uh, intelligence collection, meaning traditional espionage, um, counterterrorism, and WMD proliferation. 
extending FISA as the exclusive means by which you would collect information overseas if it is in the custody of an American company. And the legal theory behind that is an American company under U.S. law is um, entitled to protections of U.S. law as a U.S. person. I know some people think corporations are people too is a really, really um, flip way of talking about the law and this sort of um, this code word for corporate rights. But actually, as a matter of law, it is true. When an American company is overseas, they have rights and obligations under U.S. law. And so extending to them the protections under the FISA Amendments Act would be to give them additional protections and limits against um, a lawless set of collections, but would allow the government to still collect mass amounts of data. Okay, so let's break that down in about 10 different ways. <laughs> um, so for the, re for the listener who is now hopelessly confused and lost in the morass of the FAA, right now, mm -hmm. let's, just, let's just tick off what the law allows the government slash NSA to do in various situations, okay? If the government wants to conduct surveillance against me, it's got to get a fi an individual FISA wiretap, whether I'm here or overseas, because I'm a U.S. person. Correct. If the government wants to get a FISA wire, uh, wants to collect against a non-U.S. person overseas, it and it does it against a U.S. tech company here mm -hmm. using a U.S. tech company, it can, under the FISA Amendments Act, subject to one of these basket warrants, just send an order to Google that says, give me everything on this person. Correct. Well, really, it's give me everything on this selector, email address, phone number, whatever. If they And different selectors are identified with different people, but yes. <clears throat> but if the person is overseas and the government is doing the collection overseas, it can just break into the company and steal the stuff. That, it, without getting into specifics of what the government actually does. That's yes. what, I'm, I'm just yeah. talking about what the law yep. allows. And that would be not under the FISA Amendments Act, but under Executive Order 12333, which is the longstanding executive order that governs intelligence collection for the president, put out in the 80s by President Reagan. And that has very, very minimal limitations ex uh, expressed in it for U.S. person protection. So you cannot comment on this, but I can because I've never uh, taken any kind of oath to protect classified information. Please. Um, there have been Edward Snowden-driven news reports that certain American companies, particularly Yahoo, um, that NSA has tapped Yahoo's overseas pipes between data stations, i.e. under 12333 has basically just kind of vacuumed stuff up. This has led Microsoft and uh, other U.S. tech companies to be very alarmed by what's going on overseas, not under the FISA Amendments Act. I take it that is the problem that your proposal is meant to address, yeah? Absolutely. And actually, since I can't comment on the veracity of those news reports, it, 
it doesn't actually matter whether or not those news reports are true or how much of them is true. Um, what's happened is that these reports have suggested to people overseas that their data when held by American tech companies is not secure from the NSA. And it, their belief that that is true leads to all kinds of reputational harm and, frankly, economic damage against American companies operating abroad. We have seen denial of contracts to American tech companies as a result of these allegations. We've seen attempts to put data localization requirements in place, which would undermine the efficiency of the internet and data storage and cloud computing. It could be a huge economic loss. Um, not only for the tech industry generally, but specifically for the American technology industry. So your idea to be um, at a high altitude is to say four U.S. tech companies overse operating overseas carrying signal for non-U.S. persons, NSA could still get stuff in very large quantities, but it would have to do it the same way it does it with those same companies domestically, i.e. have a basket order from the FISA court and then send individual selectors to the companies for production. That's correct. And the individual selectors, there's not the same level of individualized suspicion um, that you would have for a U.S. person overseas where you'd have to know that you'd have to have probable cause to think that Ben Wittes is an agent of a foreign power. It would be there's a – and I have to go back and look at the legal standard – but there's a relationship between the selector and one of the three permissible purposes, which is foreign intelligence – counterterrorism, WMD proliferation. What that would say to the rest of the world is the United States is going to look when it's in our national security interest to look, but we're not looking at everything. We are looking at those people who are trying to create illicit WMD programs. We are looking at those people who might be engaged in terrorist attacks against us or other parts of the world, but we're not actually interested in the communications of the grandmother who's trying to organize a family dinner for the holidays. It's not everything. It's specific things for a particular purpose. As a practical matter, how big a change in operations do you think this would involve? Is it largely a question of um, now we dot the I that says, hey, this person's a legit intelligence target. Um, okay, get it. Um, and under this proposal, we would say, Nah, this person's a legitimate FI target. Okay, send it to Facebook and l have them send it to us. Or is there a, a more substantial kind of operational change that this would require? So since I'm no longer on the Intelligence Committee staff and not dealing with the operational impacts directly, it's hard for me to say specifically what it would do. Now, the other thing about this proposal, it's only information that's in the custody of an American company. This would not, say, limit the intelligence community if they decided, hey, we think person X is involved in supplying Iran with nuclear plans, and we're going to break into that person's study and steal their computer off of their desk. In that sense, that's not the information in the custody of the company. It's the, uh, it's the information in the custody of the target. So there are these questions of who's best positioned to get the information. Now, if you determine that, hey, it's too dangerous to go in and steal that directly out of the person's study, um, and it's easier for us to try and break in and see what they're 
or it's easier for us to ask the companies what is it that they're doing on Facebook or what is it that their email says and you want to go to the company to get the data, then you would have to meet the standard for the FISC basket order. Now, this could pose a problem to the extent that you are doing bulk collection at, again of everything and then running massive analysis against it to find unknown contacts. Um, that's a bit of a challenge. You still need under this, you would need some sort of seed selector that you know is bad. And then I don't think it would change the way that signals intelligence is done with the number of hops that they would use to go out from that initial selector to identify further selectors. Um, <clears throat> my understanding is that 702 collection has been very fruitful for the United States government. Um, this is a proposal that would allow them to still get the information that they need from U.S. companies. Um, but I... I want to talk to some more folks who are closer to the operational impact to see what their concerns are. Yeah, so it has a um, the benefit and the sort of elegance of building off a model that already works at a domestic level about which the intelligence community is not generally complaining about. Um, in Shane Harris's new book, the first chapter is all about how we went into in, in the context of the Iraq surge and basically took over the entire communications grid of Iraq and had access to basically every piece of information that was transmitted in Iraq, this would seem to preclude something like that, except that the companies in question weren't American companies, so it probably wouldn't even apply to them. And I suspect that there's probably a kind of war zone exception to things like um, so, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of w when you imagine if you get in touch with your inner Glenn Greenwald and say the parts of them that are really collecting it all, which is, of course, in certain locations and at certain times, really what they try to do, um, you couldn't have a collected all mentality vis-a-vis -vis Apple or Google or Facebook, but you still could with respect to, say, Deutsche Telekom or the Iraq telecommunications grid. Absolutely. That's right. The protection, you know, the Constitution would only allow us to stretch so far as to cover American entities. And the intelligence community is right that foreigners abroad have a hard time claiming the protection of the United States Constitution. So if the intelligence community said, look, we are going to get all of Huawei or ZTE's communications and they have a way to do that, have at it. So I'm curious how this idea has been received. I've seen some of the reaction on Twitter. Um, it's a uh, – if you're a civil libertarian, there's some risk here of legitimizing what they consider to be bulk collection. On the other hand, if you're the intelligence community, this is a significant set of new restriction on overseas activities. Does, is, is anybody enthusiastic about this idea or have you just made enemies everywhere? So I think the people who are most enthusiastic about it are the national security law geeks who are like, this is a really interesting idea. Um, the reaction that I've gotten out of the civil liberties community is, yeah, 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 okay, but it doesn't solve everything and it doesn't do much for U.S. persons. And 
to be fair, I think I was pretty clear about this in the in the blog post, it's not intended to. It's not intended to solve everything. It's a piece of a mosaic. And so it is significant improvement in protection for non-U.S. persons abroad. To the extent they use U.S. carriers. To the extent that they use U.S. carriers, correct. Um, and I've had some people suggest, hey, well, what you're doing is you're advantaging American companies. And frankly, I'm not really troubled by that because American companies deserve the protection of the U.S. Constitution. And if that's considered a competitive advantage, well, that's part of the Constitution. And if foreign companies choose to onshore here and become American companies in response to and to try and claim these protections, I'm okay with the idea that people are drawn to America because of our values and because of the protections in the Constitution. Um, I've had guarded reactions from industry saying that seems like a really interesting idea. We want to hear more about it. Um, and I need to talk to some more folks about operational impact. But I did a fair amount of talking to folks who had worked with the intelligence community before I put the idea out there and had gone around thinking through this idea and turning it over my head about what can you do on 12333. Because 12333 is such a broad authority for the president. But it's not actually part of our American values to say we have an interest in everything, everywhere, all the time. We actually have a national security interest in, in things. And so we don't need to know about people's grocery lists or whatever else unless there's some nexus to terrorism. If it's ingredients for a bomb, then we care. If you're just buying some broccoli, it's not our problem. The broccoli bomb is a very dangerous thing. <laughs> I hear it causes gas. How does this relate to other FISA reform efforts? I mean, we've just gone through this whole uh, USA Freedom Act 215 uh, issue along with sort of a set of proposals for operational changes to the FISA court itself and, and transparency stuff. And everybody kind of agreed, A, let's bracket broadly speaking, the 702 and 12333 stuff for a later date, you're kind of saying, we got to start talking about this. Um, what, how, does, how does this relate to the FISA debate that we're actually having right now? So I think it's important to think about them as going together because people will say in response to this, well, you're going to put these this collection under 702, but I think 702 is inadequate, or I think 702 is adequate. I think that's important. If people think that 702 collection under the FISA Amendments Act, that when we drafted that bill, we struck the wrong balance, let's have that debate. If there's a feeling that the government needs to be challenged more on its assertions or be held to a higher level of certainty about the selectors that it requests, let's have that debate. But it's a system that's worked fairly well for the government so far, so it is, let's have this as part of that debate. Now, because of the way that we're framing this idea, it would be protections for non-U.S. persons abroad whose data is held by American telecommunications carriers um, or tech companies. It does not address the 215 question of metadata, data retention, protections there. That's a separate debate, a very important one, and I think people really need to wrestle with that. Um, I 
know from my time on the committee that 702, I know people felt the need to bracket that because we've had the debate much more recently. When we went through the FISA Amendments Act itself, it was hotly debated inside the committee about what the right balance was. And I know that there were still some people on the other side um, on, on both sides of that debate who are still dissatisfied with the way that it came out. But now that the American people are more aware of what happens under 702, Let's have that debate again. It'll come up for renewal and, and we should talk about that and we should, I think, consider this as a piece of that 702 renewal. So I can see from the government's point of view, one argument against this would be, hey, right now 12333 is an area that we have sole control over. We get to decide what the rules are. We get to decide how much of it is public, how much of it is not. 702 is an area that is, though it works well for us, it is an area that is quite strictly regulated um, and the rules aren't made by us. And if you extend that into the area that is right now our sole domain, all of a sudden a much wider swath of our core mission is subject to this regulatory regime that can change as Congress ebbs and flows in uh, suspicion of, admiration of, annoyance at the intelligence community. And so the concern might be um, less substantive than jurisdictional, i.e., we just don't want to acknowledge that Congress should be regulating what we do against non-U.S. persons overseas. I certainly think that's a concern that the intelligence community would advance. You know, no one likes to have their discretion curtailed. But part of the challenge with 12333 discretion is that in large part you get reliant on cooper voluntary cooperation from companies abroad or what the news articles alleged was adverse collection against the companies. What that's done in the relationship between American companies and the intelligence community is reduce the sense of voluntary cooperation and created an adversarial relationship with the government and the companies. And the companies are spending millions of dollars to secure their infrastructure against their own government. What 702 would do or putting it under 702 would do would say the companies – the government has a way of compelling the companies to – cooperate. But from the company's perspective, by making it the exclusive means is what they would then know is the government is not going around their backs to take the information out of their data centers. They would then be aware of the full scope of government requests for their data and they would no longer have to worry about a story that says, guess what? They left the back door open and everything's being taken. So there is a trade-off. The so companies would have to comply. But the confidence of knowing that the government's dealing with you on a straightforward basis might actually, we would, ho I would hope, improve cooperation with the companies. In other words, you can get what you need, but you have to ask for it. You can't steal it. Yes. So this brings me to another anxiety that I suspect there are a lot of people in government that would uh, express. Uh, FBI Director Comey was here few weeks ago talking about uh, his concerns, A, on the CALEA side, i.e., 
companies that aren't really subject to sort of new companies that aren't really subject to clear requirements at all. That, that is requirements to produce signal when, when confronted with a warrant. But number two, that, you know, certain companies, you know, most notably Apple, have started encrypting, you know, the smartphones as a default matter so that the signal when produced is not uh, interpretable without a substantial um, decryption effort. And so I could see somebody in the intelligence community saying, wait a minute, in the absence of a known mechanism to get stuff decrypted and an obligation on the part of the companies to produce material to us in a form that we can actually use, the inability to – the requirement to take stuff by request rather than stealing it may actually function to ensure that we don't get stuff at all. Um, do you need to pair this with some kind of uh, requirement that's responsive to Comey's concerns, or is this just a separate track question? I think it's a separate track question. I think the questions of Kalia and what Comey is is worried about, uh, there are very big policy concerns. And I understand the director's concerns about getting encrypted gook back, but at the same time, He's not the only player in the information game. And so I think for company, from companies' perspectives, they are encrypting not just against NSA but against all comers. And you look what's happening to Sony Pictures right now, the data breaches that happen. I think that you have to ask yourself on the balance between securing the information against all comers and the right of law enforcement and the NSA to get usable information, where is that right? I think that honestly it's – that is too big a debate to say it has to be paired with this. If in the political wrangling that happens when you put together a complex piece of legislation, someone says, OK, I need to add this in as my, the price for me supporting this, that's a decision that gets made by members of Congress in the horse trading that happens to get a legislation piece of legislation over the line. But it's not your vision of the good. It is not my vision of the good. I think it's a – like the 702 reform questions are a separate question, that's a separate question from this. And these pieces can be taken individually, the merits of each debated, and then put together in a package that makes sense. And we had the same question on USA Freedom, right? The question of whether or not to have a special advocate at the FISA court is separate from the data retention requirements. Each of them needs to be weighed on their own merits as we go forward. This is a piece where the merits of having having compulsion from the company so that you get what you need as a trade-off for not getting everything that's out there, the, the merits of that have to be debated on its own. It gets muddier and I think it's not a clearer question when you add in, do the companies have to collect or retain data in a format in which they would not otherwise use it for business reasons in order to satisfy the FBI? And I know that that's very sensitive in industry. And so I, you know, I may take a look at that issue separately, but it's not part of this. It's really, I mean, it's a, it's an, 
it's an area that's highly sensitive both in industry and in government and on which they speak entirely different languages. Yes. And it's also actually an issue in which the offense and the defense speak very differently about it. It is, while uh, Director Comey may want to be able to collect the information in a form that's usable to him, at the same time, the folks at DHS are very concerned about data breach and foreign actors getting into the data and so are interested in encryption. And this goes to this whole separate question about NSA and whether or not they're weakening encryption standards. We have to ask ourselves as a nation, where do we put the value on securing data against all comers or on being able to somehow use the data for our intelligence purposes? And then we have to ask, if that's the case, how well is the intelligence information being analyzed and used to predict or um, gain outcomes for the U.S. government? So one area where I anticipate an objections from the civil libertarian community, although I actually haven't seen this objection yet, but I, I keep expecting to see it. Ah, uh, and you're feeding it to them. Yeah, so I'm going to feed it to him. If, if you're listening, Jamil Jaffer, uh, this one's for you. Um, you know, by and large, civil libertarians don't like 702. Uh, the, you know, the ACLU and those uh, like-minded groups opposed it at the part where it's was passed by Congress. They have consistently argued that it's unconstitutional and litigated against it. Um, there are a number of cases challenging it. Um, and I could see the argument that the extension of a whole lot of unconstitutional standards, just as the intelligence community would look at it and say, this is a there's a jurisdictional problem with exporting this overseas. I could see a lot of civil libertarians saying, hey, wait a minute, creating, you know, exporting this model is a legit, you know, legitimizes it. And, and it, it creates the idea that this is an adequate set of standards and it's you know, good enough at home and good enough abroad. Um, I know your view is we should have that debate um, about the adequacy of 702, but this is a different question, which is sort of the, its its reach overseas. But is it really severable? I mean, don't don't you have to have if you're going to say this is the standard that we want? the intelligence community to apply, don't we have to have a comfort level that that is in fact a good enough standard? So I think the question of whether or not 702 is adequate for U.S. persons is a separate question of whether or not 702 is adequate for non-U.S. persons because the constitutional standard for a U.S. person is higher. So the ACLU may be correct in that 702 collection is not sufficient when U.S. person information is implicated on, say, one end of a, of a phone call. But when it's foreign to foreign, I think that the protections that you're extending are not necessarily running to the individual there who frankly has no constitutional rights, but are running to the custodian of the information. But at some point, because of the technology we have today and the way that the intelligence community does the searching, it's necessary for them or they feel like it's necessary under current technology to do mass collection. I don't want to say bulk collection because I don't want to suggest we're taking everything. Um, my old colleague Jeremy Bash has said on numerous occasions, 
in order to find a needle in a haystack, first you need to build a haystack. And the thinking under 702 was that it was a lower level of scrutiny that was necessary in the building of the haystack in the first place because not all pieces of hay were going to get looked at. And so that the incidental risk to any individual piece of hay who would get looked at um, was low and so the constitutional scrutiny was lower. However, I think there are a lot of people who feel like just in the collecting of the information, even if the haystack sits in a locked room and isn't looked at, that that's a violation in and of itself. Well, the question to me comes down to if you're going to take the lower standard in the building of the haystack, then you need to put additional controls on the query of the haystack for the protections of the U.S. person information that's inside of that. That is, I think, a question about the adequacy of 702, and that gets to limitations on the way that people inside the intelligence community choose to search the data and how they minimize that. It puts it inside executive discretion, and I think that's really tough for people to swallow given their suspicions of the NSA. But if you're not going to build the protections of the haystack and you can't have a tailored haystack in the beginning, then you have to ask yourself, What are the controls on the query of the haystack? Every time you reach in there, how do you know that you're not using the information in a way that infringes on U.S. persons' rights in a way that we would find unconstitutional? Um, This is information that doesn't meet a Fourth Amendment standard for a criminal prosecution, or at least that hasn't been tested yet, but I would imagine that it doesn't. Just because Congress says it's okay for intelligence purposes, most of the things that we do with that information are ne- never wind up in a court of law. How we keep tabs on people, whether or not you stop people at checkpoints overseas, that doesn't actually implicate the courts, so you don't have the full panoply of due process standards under the Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment. But I take it that you, and then implicit in what you're saying, is that you have a certain personal comfort level with 702 that the ACLU may not have. Um, I would say I have a certain amount of resignation to 702. I don't know that comfort level is entirely the right question and or the right way of phrasing it. Um, I do think that There are questions of what happens on use from the collection of 702. And I would love to be able to see in the future that we are developing technologies that say you don't actually have to build a haystack, but that we are sophisticated enough in our analysis of technology that you actually can find a needle stack, right? And the hay is eliminated from that. So tell us a little about your background. uh, You've been... You worked on the House Intelligence Committee. You've worked on these issues for a long time. Um, Where do you, what's, how how did you get into this stuff and, and, and how would you describe your sort of basic orientation with respect to it? So I got into this by accident. I, um, I'd started as an intern on Capitol Hill for Pat Schroeder, who your younger listeners probably don't remember. Um, but she was a member of Congress from Colorado. I'd interned for her. My parents decided they wouldn't let me sit around and go to the beach that summer, so I had to do something productive. Um, And I enjoyed working for her. She was a very sharp mind, Harvard lawyer, really um, very smart about both politics and substance. Um, And she hired me after I graduated from college, and she said, the job that I have available is to do the armed services work. I had thought, being someone who was inclined towards argument, that I would go to law school and 
I don't know, do civil liberties work or become a judge or I don't know. Um, but when she offered me the armed services work, I said I would do it because I enjoyed working for her. Um, and what I found out was that the military is a microcosm of society. So every issue that you have in the broader world is is in the military. Um, and I just really enjoy the issues. You have all of the regular issues, health care, civil liberties. But then on top of that, you get acquisition of large weapon systems and questions of war. So sort of a win for me. Um, then going to law school and having served after that serving for Senator Kennedy, when we were having some of these debates about electronic surveillance and detention, um, I saw that a lot of the legal thinking that had gone into those programs, I would say was shoddy compared to what I would have liked to have seen. Um, and I became much more interested in the legal issues at that point. How long did you serve on the intelligence committee? I was there from 2007 through two, January 2010, so during the FISA Amendments Act debate. Right. So. I'm interested in your sense of Congress's institutional performance in the FISA Amendments Act debate. It was, you know, for those of us who watched it from the outside, it was one of these, you know, horrible sausage-making episodes, um, but one that, like a lot of the rest of the FISA um, history, actually produced some quite functional law, at least uh, from the government's point of view. I'm curious what your inside sense of it was. Is this Was that a process that we should be proud of for all its warts, or was it a process for which, you know, which re reflects institutional incapacity to think about dense national security issues um, in, in Congress? So no one likes watching a sausage getting made. In the congressional, the legislative process is always a mess. It's been that way on every major piece of legislation you've worked on. Um, and that's just a fact of life. But I would say I was pleasantly surprised at the engagement of the members of the committee on these questions. And for all the people who are upset at the after the Snowden revelations and where we are on the FISA Amendments Act, I wish they could have seen the debates that the members had in running up to the, in running up to the legislation. We had one piece of legislation that failed, the uh, Protect America Act, which we then had to subsequently fix with the FISA Amendments Act. But the members really pushed hard on a lot of these civil liberties questions. They expressed their discomfort. They pushed at the intelligence community. They questioned assumptions. Some of them voted against. They were... Um, much more protective of people's values and privacy than I think they were given credit for when the final piece of legislation was inked. Because most of that debate had to happen behind closed doors. And I know a lot of people think the intelligence committee is a rubber stamp because all they see coming out is the final product. But I have to defend the committees a little bit and say that they do work a lot harder to protect Americans and bring into the room a much better sense of where Americans' privacy values are than the intelligence community itself brings to the table. Thanks very much for coming in. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution 
Thanks this week to the folks in the Brookings studio for hosting Mika and me. You need to help us promote the Lawfare podcast. Tweet it. Talk about it endlessly and obsessively at dinner parties. Facebook like it. Take a picture of yourself on Instagram listening to it. Our music, as ever, is performed by the inimitable Sophia Yan, who always says of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, I hear it causes gas. Thanks for listening.